0: Our scripture reading this morning comes from Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. When It says, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists rose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, British theologian and prolific writer, N.T. Wright, was once approached by a, a famous publisher who asked him to write a book with a very specific title. And that title was Jesus at 60. Kind of confused, Wright asked him what the book was supposed to be about. And the publisher said he thought that it was a very curious fact that Jesus died when he was 30 years old. What would have happened had Jesus lived until he was 60? And, of course, as Wright began to ask why he thought this would be interesting, the publisher went on to explain that what happens is is you often have a kind of a, a luxury when you're young of being like super idealistic, don't you? And invariably, if Jesus had simply lived longer, he would have had a chance to speak his mind on how the church was supposed to develop its administrative tasks. Because if you think about it, you know, most organizations, they follow a fairly predictable path. Everything starts with a big idea, a product maybe, a belief, a movement, maybe some kind of call to action. These are these sort of a heady, you know, uh, we're definitely going to change the world type thoughts, and the conversations that ignite the imagination. But what I found, and I think you'll recognize, is organizations rarely think through exactly not so much what happens if we fail, but a lot of times organizations fail to think through what happens if we succeed. Because once an organization starts to grow, there's a whole host of different questions that have to be asked. How are we going to sustain this? Uh, How are we going to maintain our distinctiveness? How are we going to deal with our growing pains? It always reminds me of the stories that I've heard about families who decide that they've got room in their house for one more baby. And so they experience the joy of getting pregnant. They go to the doctor for the first time. They do whatever sort of ultrasound for them. And the nurse looks around and goes, Well, congratulations, you're expecting triplets. And I always wish I could have been beside that father, right, who at the moment that he hears triplets is like, Wow, yes. But then slowly it dawns on him exactly what really is happening. Tri- tri- triplets. <laughs> How are we going to pay for this thing? How are we going to manage all of that? I say that because I think that's a little bit of the emotional experience of what the disciples are going through. By the way, N.T. Wright turned down the offer to write that book on what I thought was very solid theological grounds. But mostly because he was asking a question that we're asking this semester. Wright did not believe that Jesus sort of abstracted himself from the church as it was growing. And we've been asking ourselves that question this entire semester. How can Jesus continue to lead the church if he's not physically present to do so? And what we might say to ourselves is, we're like, oh, if only Jesus had been here, maybe we he wouldn't have to go through all these speed bumps that are happening throughout. But please understand something. It is not that Jesus is sort of accommodating to a what we might call a just-make-do situation, because it's clear from the text that the church is laying out exactly how Jesus planned it. These new believers were more than adequately resourced to carry out everything he commanded them to. What's interesting, though, is is Jesus allowed his his believing followers to participate in the joy of discovery, (laughs) or dare we say the pains of discovery, of what it was like as his plan unfolded. You know, as an aside, I really don't think we focus on that very often enough. The Bible does not teach that human beings are these sort of I don't know, robotic automatons that are simply going through the motions of choice and action. But what he writes is is he begins to sort of write his own creatures into this grand narrative that he's he's writing so that they can participate with him in the joy of discovery, or as Tolkien refers to it, as the sub-creators underneath the creator. We're here to discover on our own. We're we're here to assemble insights into wisdom. We're, We're here to lean on resources that God has implanted in the universe. Like That's the joy of our humanity from the Christian point of view. And so from our perspective, though, however, what we see is we see yet another assault on Jesus' church. A few weeks ago, we saw the assault coming from the outside as these early believers were oppressed Last week we saw how the assault came from inside of the church through spiritual posers that were trying to change its message. Now we see the devil sort of seizing on an opportunity afforded by division to divide them through what we might call distraction. So my premise this morning is when you watch how the disciples work through this problem, it gives us a very powerful map to deal with our own similar problems in our day. So three simple points this morning that lay out pretty obviously. We want to look at the problem, we want to look at the solution, and then we want to look at the result. First of all, let's understand this problem here. How did this whole thing, dust up, start up? Well, look at verse 1. It's a very familiar story, but in order to really get it, you've got to do some background. And the first thing that we're told is that the whole thing goes down when, quote, the disciples were increasing in number. Now, hold that thought. We're going to return to it because it's really important. The second thing we're told is that there was a conflict that had arisen between two distinct ethnic groups among Jewish people. One group is called the Hellenists. The other group is called the Hebrews. Now, look, we've got to do a little bit of history lesson for ourselves, but it's not that complicated. Because you've got to understand that when the apostles were living, Israel as a nation had not been independent and sovereign for well over 400 years. It's been a long time. And if you go back to that history, you'll find that before before their breakup, many of them were dragged away into slavery. Other people just fled to other lands to try to seek a better life there. But for lots of these people who fled this area of Palestine, they didn't let go of their Jewishness. They held the torch for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob while they were there. This group of people became known to New Testament Jewish people as the dispersed or you'll hear them referred to as the Diaspora, what they were was they were the scattered but still faithful. They remained faithful because every now and then they would journey back to Jerusalem for Passover. And while many of them were there, they heard the preaching of Peter and got converted. And so they decided to stick around for a while. Okay, so those were known as the Hellenists. Get to why they call them that in just a second. But there was another group of people who had also been carried away into both Babylonian and Assyrian exile. But after that ended, they returned back to the homeland so they could repopulate it. And as you can imagine, because they were in the homeland, they kind of carried with them a little bit of an air of superiority. They, of course, were the ones who deserved more recognition. They needed more respect. They were the true Jews. Okay, so do you see the fault lines already forming? (laughs) So you got this little fragile truce that exists between these two groups with all kinds of historical condescension being passed back and forth. And so what happens is it says a complaint arose. Now, pause on that word because this is interesting too. Because that word that that Luke is using, uh, uh, that, that we have translated complaint, that exact same Greek word appears most interestingly in the Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and we call that the Septuagint, when we find that Moses dealing with the people of God, these early Jews, and they are complaining to Moses. The Israelites were always complaining. You have it translated in most of your Bibles as grumbling. Remember the grumbling we talked about a couple semesters ago when we talked about the book of Exodus? My goodness, could they grumble. They complained about Moses' leadership. They complained about the food. And they complained about the desert and the water. You can go look up all those references there. But I think think Luke is doing his thing again because he's taking a powerful Old Testament connection because he knows that a Jewish person wouldn't have missed it. There was grumbling that arose. And they would have been like, oh, we've heard that word before. See the connection he's making. So, So that's what the whole thing is about. The problem can be boiled down to the threat of division over two factors. Number one is racism. The second one is church growth. And we've been doing it ever since. Look, I mean, first of all, you've got what you have there, a cultural diversity issue. Look, everyone knew from the very beginning of the Holy Spirit's dissension in Acts chapter 2 that God's people were bringing together people of radically different cultural and racial backgrounds in order to make them one new people. So you got this group called the Hellenists who were Greek uh, by by culture. They had lived and adopted Greek cultural styles while they spoke Greek in the midst of those places. On the other hand, you have the Hebrews who only spoke the mother tongue of Hebrew, who of course were the loyalists. They were the purists. But, of course, the Holy Spirit comes in and begins to give them a taste of neutralizing all of these old cultural distinctions that meant something big to them. Before, those things were essential to their identity or part of who they were. But once all of a sudden they met Christ, they found that it didn't erase their nationality, but it just set it into context. Their nationality and their race did not define them anymore. And every bit of that was perfectly evident by the end of Acts chapter 2. Until the church started growing. (laughs) And then the problems start. Look, because, which I think is a huge principle before we even move on. A whole lot of the struggles that a church has to deal with in church life really doesn't show up until the church starts to grow, does it? You ever seen this? Look, you know, when you, when, when you start the founding, you know, here we are. We have finally founded the church of the most pure. Thank goodness we're no longer with those crazy people that we were with in my old church. Now we're going to get it right this time. And everybody's into it. Everybody's serving. Everybody's volunteering for the nursery. Everybody's sitting around setting up chairs together. I mean, it's a real heady time when things start. But before too long, kind of look around, we don't know everybody. And you know what? The space that we're in, it's cramped here. And, but worse yet, someone is sitting in my row. How could they do that? And of course, all of a sudden, somebody gets an insane idea. I know. Let's build a building. So we do. And then once we're in the new building, there's all these new people that show up. Who is I don't know anybody at church anymore. And now all of a sudden, they want me to get on a website to sign up for stuff. And honestly, i got I to fill out some form just to use a, a room at the church. Ugh. I've been practicing that, that UG at, <clears throat> at the very end. It kind of worked on me. But look, don't forget, all of this grumbling is happening while they're fighting over, you ready for this, feeding widows. It's all in the, it's all in the pursuit of a really good thing. What's going on? It's the growth that begins to strain them. Like I hope I don't have to spell this out, but a growing church, we would assume, is a good thing. It's positively pictured in Scripture, but Jesus' church has been wrestling with these kinds of changes that come along with growth from the very beginning. Yes, some of those, those, those results are the result of sin, absolutely. But some, we, you know, we start out by saying, yay, the gospel you know, neutralizes all of our cultural distinctives until they started coming, <laughs> We started out by saying, this is going to be the greatest church ever. Until I could not find a parking space. You know, I belong in a smaller church. Now, do not misunderstand me. There is nothing wrong with someone saying, you know what? I really do believe that I can serve Jesus better in a context where the crowd is a little more accessible to me. As long as the change is made for the purpose of advancing the kingdom. I'm, I'm, I'm really honestly not distressed at all when someone makes a choice to move on from Christ's Press to another church that preaches the Bible here in town. As long as it's with the intention of serving better. You want to know why? Because it's hard to grow. It just is. It's difficult for people. It challenges. And it's been that way from the very beginning from Acts chapter 6. Okay, so that's the first look at what the problem was. Church growth and racism getting all mixed up together. It's amazing. Secondly, though, I want you to look at what the apostles came up with when it comes to the solution. Again, what I find interesting is what the apostles did not do in the midst of this controversy. Think about it. If you were in charge and you kind of saw the church sort of splitting up into all these factions, would there be a little bit of an instinct inside of you to, I don't know, beat them into submission? You know, what? You're fighting over this? How dare you? You should be ashamed for the way you're acting right now. Get your act together. But that's not what the apostles say. There's no evidence of that. You know what they do instead? You ready for this? They decide to adopt a new leadership structure. Does that grab you? (laughs) In other words, they find an administrative solution to the problem. Now, look, before we dive into that, there's something really interesting there that I feel is really important to, to stress. Not every problem in the church is a moral problem. But for some reason, because we're in church, we will always look at conflict in general through the eyes of guilt and obedience. Well, honestly, when they get their hearts right, we'll be fine. It's always somebody else. It's always their hearts, isn't it? It's so never mine. But sometimes getting to peace in the church is simply a matter of just learning new ways to do life together. Yes, it's complicated. Yes, it's, but it's administrative. It's not necessarily evil what someone's done, and the conflict may not be caused by that. Now, look, with that in mind, I want you to see how much wisdom the apostles show here, and I see at least three strains of wisdom in the solution I'm going to present to you. The first thing that they do is they define what their job is specifically. Look at verse 2. It is not right, they say, that we should give up preaching the Word of God to serve tables. Look at verse 4. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Like there's a whole other sermon to be preached on the apostles' instincts here. But notice that they get clear on the fact that we need ample room to be studying, to be preaching, to be teaching, and we need time to pray. Look, I was in college when I remember talking to, <laughs> talking to a mentor friend of mine who said, who, I was telling him that I was considering a a, a career in what we would call vocational ministry. And um, he said, well, look, as long as you, you can do this, as long as you remember one thing, to be a minister is to sign up to write a term paper a week for the rest of your life. And it was, as we say, sobering to me as a young person on my way into that. But look, after doing this for about 30 years or so, I can tell you this, there are few tests of your faith quite like preaching and teaching. I mean, honestly, you think to yourself, is this really worth it? Is there anybody listening? Like, is there any good in us sitting here together, restlessly, I'm sure, searching for something interesting that might grab me? Hey, and by the way, I'm not not describing what you're thinking. I'm describing what I'm thinking when we come together for this. Which is one of the reasons why I think the apostles knew that in order to sort of put studying and preaching together, it's got to be connected to prayer. In other words, there's got to be a supernatural conviction to believe something which honestly is nuts. And that is, if you think about what Christians do, they give of their hard-earned money so that pastors and elders can have time to, to, to gather together and alone and bring your needs to God as well as the needs of the mission of this church to God. It's strange belief to think about how absurd that is in the eyes of the watching world. Of course, it's crazy. But my point is the apostles would never have been able to navigate this this grumbling going on in their church if they had not first gotten clear about what their job was. I realize for many of you get very sick of just harping on our our, uh, church's mission. Hope, home, and healing. Hope, home, and healing. If I got to hear that one more time, blah, 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 blah. We get tired of that. But why? The reason why we do that is because we're trying to get clear on the mission that God has given us. And what's very difficult about navigating that vision is that once we get clear on who we are and what God has called us to do, it means we have to say no to some other things. And unfortunately, some of those things we have to say no to, you're passionate about. And even crazier than that, they're good things. They're just not our good things. No wonder they said that we need to devote ourselves to prayer. That takes a lot of wisdom, y'all. Okay, that's the first bit of wisdom. They got clear on who they were. They understood their identity. Second thing they did is look at the men they chose. This is really cool, and you might have missed it the first time through, because all of the names of these seven deacons that they chose are actually Greek names, which I love. The apostles chose men who could adequately represent the very people who felt like their widows were getting slighted. Does that make sense? In other words, they looked and said, we need to make sure that these newly chosen leaders are giving us leadership, the voice of the people that are feeling the most disenfranchised right now. These Hellenistic widows, right? They chose Greek speaking deacons to represent the people that are upset. Man, this is, do you see the wisdom in this? We've just finished an eight-month process of nominating and electing and installing deacons. We're about to start the same thing over for a handful of elders that we're praying for the Lord to raise up among us. But it's a lesson for us to be very careful about how we look and see how our congregation is represented. Should we not? Are there enough old along with with the young? Are there middle class along with wealthy? That's not being pragmatic. That's the Bible's wisdom third piece of wisdom we get in the midst of this solution is what you see in verse 6. Notice what it says, is that they laid their hands on them. I take that to mean that what these were is these these men were commissioned, ordaining, a dainable job in Jesus' church uh, that became the office of deacon. Now look, for those of you that are all into these kinds of things, I'm admitting the fact that the word deacon is not in Acts chapter 6. It's not. However, if you remove that from this context, you really don't have any reference to know what the Apostle Paul is talking about in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, where he lists the qualifications for the office of deacon. So I think it's pretty clear that what's going on in Acts chapter 6 is this creation of the office of deacon. But what is a deacon? What does he do? Well, we've been talking about this, but to sum it up, the deacon is one who organizes and facilitates ministry to God's people for their physical needs, while the elders attend to the people's spiritual needs. Look, you've heard me say that before, but look, think about how essential the role of a deacon really is. There's a great quote from Tony Morita, a commentator who says this. He says, these seven servants help to maintain harmony in the church by addressing the drama that's associated with neglected widows. Deacons are shock absorbers. (laughs) I love that line. These are the ones that are the peacemakers. In other words, a deacon helps to ensure the peace by helping people with their physical needs and not giving us opportunity to get all upset and angry at each other over the fact that my needs are not getting met. It's a really subtle point here because I think that we need to remember that there's all these resonances that come with the story of God's people in the Old Testament. There's one here as well. It turns out that when the apostles choose the seven There's another Old Testament story that's being referenced. Look at verse 3. There's one word that you have translated in ESV as pick out from among you. Again, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that word appears again in Numbers 27 when Moses chooses Joshua as one who is picked out from among you. Ooh, do you see what Luke is doing? This is cool. The Lord's answer to Moses' prayer was Joshua. The Lord's answer to the apostles' prayer was the seven. I love this. Deacons like Joshua are going to lead God's people to carry God's mission into Gentile territory. Joshua led them into Canaan, a place full of spiritual pollution, right? The seven servants, though, lead God's new Israel into Judea and Samaria and all the way to the ends of the earth. What would they do? They would help calm the whole of God's territory from the discord that comes from it. What this means is that the early church made sure, and this is how I want to sum this up, that the ministry of the word and the ministry of deed stayed together in an essential unity. And it was a stroke of genius because we all know that, right? That the gospel sets our hearts up for healing while it then provides the context to heal our bodies and the world around us. That's how we hold that together, which brings me to my third and final point. We've seen the problem and the solution. What was the result? I can do this quickly. The result in verse 7 says, The word of God grew. People responded. I find it interesting as a side note that the, one of the more interesting groups of people that responded, Luke mentions at the end of that verse, and a great many priests became obedient to the faith. I wonder why he would point that out. Well, if you go dive into the Old Testament view of priests, you're going to find that the priests were the ones that were the most active in what you and I would call mercy ministry. I mean, just a quick perusal of the book of Leviticus, you'll find that the priests were the ones that were there helpfully meeting the physical needs of the community. So can you imagine what happened? Here's all these Old Testament priests in Jesus' day watching this new movement come up of Christians and they're sitting there watching and you know what they're doing? They're taking care of one another and they're like, whew, that was our job. My guess is they responded to the message because they saw integrity. They saw an integrity there that they didn't see in their own hearts. And that brings me to my final point. That what happened was, is there is a powerful note, a powerful expression of cultural preservation when we hold a ministry of word and a ministry of deed together. It's the most powerful thing that moves in the culture. People get converted over these things. And it's been this way from the beginning. Read it before, but there's a second, third century A.D. Christian apologist uh, who wrote a letter called the Letter to Diognetus. It has a famous quote. He says, "But these Christians, they live in countries, but only as aliens. They have a share in everything as citizens and endure everything as foreigners. Every foreign land is their fatherland, and yet for them, every fatherland is a foreign country. They marry like everyone else, and they beget children, but they don't cast out their offspring." They share their board with each other, but not their marriage bed. It's true that they are in the flesh, but they do not live according to the flesh. They busy themselves on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws, but in their own lives, they go far beyond what, what the laws require. And then he says this, What the soul is to the body, that the Christians are to the world. That's the mission. That's what happens when we hold not just a bunch of theological fanciness together, as important as that is and as essential as that is, but to couple that together with an expression of the world that actually takes care of people. It blows them away. They're drawn, and God continues to grow his church for a world that's desperate in need of it. That's a vision for the church. Would to God that we would live into that truth. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you grant us in this place, a vision of that, because so often uh, we struggle to know it. We struggle to achieve it. We want it. There's an inertia inside of our hearts, Father, that wants to externalize all these truths. We want to say something about it that feels nice, but we don't want to step up into it. So, Father, we pray that this morning we would be an example of the opposite, that we would this morning resolve ourselves, that you would, you would engage in the imaginations of our people, ways in which we might live this out, Ways in which we might hold word and deed together as a great and powerful witness to our community. Would you do that? For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.